There we go. The topic is always the same, but we disguise it by giving it a name so that when you go on the Dharma Seed website, you can get the talk that you want. The topic is always, how is it possible to live in this life uh, at this time uh, and have a mind that's uh, grateful to be here, spacious, forgiving, curious, uh, warm-hearted, free of um, confusion and anger and regret and pain. How is it possible? Uh, as I'm, I'm even chuckling to myself as I'm saying that, because the first line of the sutta, the sermon by the Buddha of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, says, this is the sole way of monks, O monks, for the ending of grief and lamentation and you think, wait a minute. First of all, that's such a parochial thing to say. This is the soul way. And and the ending of grief and lamentation, when we all ended that. But really what it says is, uh, like grief and lamentation doesn't end. Or that grief ends, maybe, but they don't. That's what I'm going to talk about today. But that the will to live doesn't end. And the hope that it's going to get better. And what I'm going to talk about today is really the possibility of rejoicing in the possibility of having this life, whatever it is that, you know, um, somebody I knew years ago, a man who died in his mid-30s of an unusual disease for a young man, said about life, his life, he said uh, in a letter to all his friends to be sent after he died, he said, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. That people want to have a life. We all want to have a life. Of course, we like to have a life that's pain-free and suffering-free. But to want to have a life and to rejoice in it. So uh, I have a number of things I want to talk about today, but they all have to do with that. Not only want to have a life, but want to be in a mood that says... I'm grateful that I have a life. There's a book called Gratitude by um, David Steindl-Rast, who's, who's clergy. He's a Catholic monk. He has been all of his adult life. And he's in his mid-90s now. And his first major book was called Gratitude. And really talking about that gratitude is the the fundamental underlying attitude that supports living a life with all its travails. If your attitude is, praise God that I've got a life, just in general. So Leonard Cohen, who died just a few years ago, the songwriter, poet, Leonard Cohen, died at an old age several years ago, uh, had as his signature uh, verse um, this this verse uh, even when it all goes wrong I'll stand before the Lord of song with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah even when it all goes wrong I'll stand before the Lord of songs with nothing on my tongue but hallelujah so how to have a mind that, that can do that 
so that you're alive every minute of your life. So I thought that we'd start um, by hearing and seeing Leonard Cohen singing a little bit of Hallelujah. How many people think they know what song I'm talking about? Remember it. Okay. Mm. So then consider this to be the beginning of your meditation. When it starts, if you want to watch it, and then when it's finished, let your eyes closed and just sit there and hear it. It's two and a half minutes, and then I'll talk. You look around and you see a world that cannot be made sense of. You either raise your fists or you say hallelujah. 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 I was a young reporter for Rolling Stone magazine in 74 doing a piece on Leonard. He's so gracious. It goes like this the fourth. Leonard, he was always a spiritual seeker. Unlocking the mysteries of life was his primary preoccupation. Sitting in a meditation hall for four or five hours a day, you kind of get straight with yourself. You know, it was often starting with this song, first thing, coffee, then working on Hallelujah. There was a lot of verses. The number 180 comes to mind. The real song, where that comes from, no one knows that is grace, that is a gift. Columbia Records uh, refused to put it out. The rejection of an album after it's paid for, that's pretty extreme, yeah. He was crushed after that. She tied you to a kitchen chair. The first version of Hallelujah I heard was Jeff Buckley. Jeff Buckley. I remember John Cale covering that song. And I remember going, wow, not a lot of people know that tune. Just Cale and Buckley. And then Shrek. So Shrek really broke it. And even though it all went wrong. Hallelujah really beat the odds and that it's its own thing now. And it has its own life. I mean, I think he was tickled pink that everybody in their sister was singing the song. You're getting things that are so deep and so resonant in your own spiritual journey that you are benefiting from his. You look around and you see all of my um my impulses to say let's listen again but let's just sit now those of you who remember it maybe felt it in your body those of you who perhaps didn't Maybe you felt it immediately when you listened to it. Whichever way. Clear your body just as it is. Maybe it resonates with memories to where you were or heard that song. Or maybe you don't have those memories. 
Maybe you're wistful about that. I wish I had that. However you are, whatever you feel, to be able to say, this is fine. This moment is fine. To be able to feel in this moment is fine. So we'll sit for a little bit with that instruction. However I am, it's fine. Maybe we'll make it 10 minutes or something. Without instructions about put your attention here or there, your attention is wherever it is. How about this for an instruction? Every little bit, tell yourself something about what you experience right now. Like, I'm sitting, if you feel yourself sitting. Or I'm breathing. Or I'm feeling my breath. or I'm feeling nostalgic. Any piece of news about what your body and mind is doing right now. It's an amazing organism, this body-mind. It does its thing and it has awareness of that. And it's doing its thing whether or not you have awareness of it. But when you have awareness of it at the moment of it, it's fuller. See if it's that way for you. If you narrate for yourself your experience for the next 10 minutes, just this.
just before you open your eyes, think for a moment, what did you learn from your experience in these 10 minutes of sitting? And then when you want to open your eyes. Maybe three people want to say, what did you learn? It's been so much more helpful for me to change from what happened to you, what experiences happened to you, because experiences come and go. But what did you learn? has been really crucial in my life as a, practitioner and as a teacher, because the point is not to have experiences, but to learn so that we get changed. What did you learn? I'll give you an example of what I learned so that you see what that means. I felt good. I mean, these are not what I learned. This is what I felt. I felt good. I felt my body was awakened. I felt it was resonating. I uh, felt a kinship with all the people who had raised their hand and said, you know, yes, I've heard this before. Uh, what I learned, again, was that when I bring my attention to my body, to what's happening right now, to my physical sensations, and to my mind sensations, my thoughts, my feelings, my emotions, that they're always changing. I think that's a fundamental thing that when you think about what, what can you sum up the whole of what the Buddha taught, it was that everything is always changing. Everything is always changing. You can't say it's like this because it's already like that. But everything is always changing. I also rethought that that's always a cause for hope. Because when my mind is discouraged or grumbly or annoyed or in pain or resentful, and I'm in pain from how my mind or my body is, I somehow know that it's going to change. It's just temporary. It'll pass. And I think that... Uh, of the things that the Buddha said, you needed to, to liberate yourself from suffering. You needed to know that everything passes. So you don't have to be afraid of anything because it all passes. Does that make sense, Steve? We're really not, we're not, it's not to have an experience, but to learn what you can depend on. I, I, two people very close to me died in the next last couple of years. And in the end, they were really hoping that the end would arrive. They said, when is it going to happen? They said, it'll come. It's happening. It's happening. Yeah, the, the news that everything is happening. The most unpleasant, you want to get it over with. That's happening too. And it's not grim. It's just a fact. Anybody want to say now what they learned? That's all right. I'll tell you. <laughs> I already told you that the uh, that one of the things that's always happening is change is happening, and that's going to be the the um, one of the 
three things that's always happening, according to the Buddha. But I thought we might play a game. Here's another way to be playful about this. I've been thinking about this. Um, how can you say, uh, how can you really say, it's fine, how are you? I'm fine because I have my mind as wide as it could be. So it's not stuck in the pain, the travail, the annoyance, the discomfort of the moment. My mind is not held hostage by any of the painful aspects of it because I've got this and this and this. <laughs> it occurs to me that my grandmother, who was my principal uh, early childhood educator because she lived with us, my parents both had jobs and went to work. And my grandmother, when I was with her and we'd meet a, a friend of hers in the street and they would ask Alea, how are you? She'd say, well, um, my uh, I, my bursitis in my shoulder is bothering me. And I've had quite a bit, I uh, have a lot of indigestion these days. And uh, I'm worried about my nephew in Sarasota. I haven't heard from him in a long time, but I myself am okay. And I really love that, that I myself am okay, that all these things are going on. Anybody had a grandmother like that? I consider her to be my first spiritual teacher. I myself am okay. All these things are going on. As we should have that as a password for this class. Everything is happening, and that's amazing. Hallelujah. So we'll play some other game. Here's the game. Uh, I, first of all, went to see um, Hallelujah at the movies the other day. So I'm not telling you to go to the movies because you have to decide whether you're comfortable going in a movie theater. And first of all, it has to be around somewhere so you can see it. But Hallelujah, uh, which is a documentary um of the life of um, Leonard Cohen is playing in the local arts theater here in Marin, which in an afternoon, in a late Sunday afternoon, has practically nobody in it altogether. And especially in this, the more arty of the offerings. When the lights came up at the end of it, you saw that the whole, the whole movie theater had maybe 20 people in it. And they're all over 75. They're all, no young people were in that movie. They had to, or over 70 for sure. Everybody was old. <laughs> and everybody loved it. And uh, then it was in my mind all weekend. And I thought there was so much Dharma in it. And I made a list of things that I would talk about, about the, the Dharma of being able to say, even when it all goes wrong, I'll stand, I'll stand before the Lord of song, which I'm sure you got to mean God. When it all goes wrong, I'll stand before the whole world and I'll say hallelujah, praise God. And so I've made a list of all the things, that why the Buddha would have said, I mean, the Buddha didn't talk in the language of praising God. That wasn't the language that he spoke or lived in. But how can we say, uh, I'm grateful to be alive, that there is this gratitude in me. Gratitude is where all, all zestful life comes from. So I made a list. And I was going to tell you, I'll, I, I, if you want to play this as a game, if you've got a pencil and a paper, 
And what about, I'll tell you a list of 13 things or 10 things that I'm going to talk about. Uh, and I want you to be able to look at the list. When I finish the list, I'm going to say, what do you think holds all these things together? And what's the connecting thought? Okay. You ready? Pencil? Okay. Some of them may be words that you haven't heard before. Thing one, um, one on the list is Hiri, H-I-R-I in English. Hiri and Otapa, O-T-A-P-A. Those are English translations of two Pali words, the language that the Buddha taught. And they are translated into English as the quite terrible translations. Moral shame and moral dread. So that's number one. The second, number two, Susan Felix, who uh, is quite ill these days, but was a member of the Sangha for many, many years. She's a poet and a sculptor and the, uh, uh, well, she's an important arts person in Berkeley. And she signed all her emails, stay amazed, Susan Felix. So that's two. I'm talking about Susan. Talking about Hiri and Otapa and Susan and uh, Jane Kenyon and um, uh, giant sea turtles and Robert Louis Stevenson and the 12 steps of dependent origination And the Four Noble Truths. And the Three Characteristics of Experience. And the One Noble Truth. And the mysterious phrase, nothing matters. So anybody want? <laughs> Laura in Germany is having a kick out of this. What do you think, Laura? You have to, you have to unmute yourself. Oh, um. Well, thank you for letting me speak. I was just actually, I was just uh, having um, having fun with with the game, not having many thoughts. Just um, I don't have an answer. I was just having a blast about thinking a possible um, what it could be, which I don't know, but it's very interesting exercise for the mind and for the heart. I think. Well, I think the first of all, thank you for joining us. Where are you in Germany? Um, I'm near Frankfurt in Gießen. Okay, I'm, I'm very happy that you're there. And it's, thank you. It's evening there. Yes, yes. 
Well, they're coming. Okay. Uh, I'll, uh, we'll see what, uh, as we go along. I'm glad you joined us. Who else right. thinks they see a connection between, wants a hazard a guess about how they're all connected? Nobody. Lisa, Lisa Marie is kind of deciding if she's going to. No, not deciding. <laughs> I should look on the other page, see if anybody else is deciding. No. All right. Is that a unanimous tell us why? <laughs> How they're connected? All right. I see Rivka and Harrison have their oh, hands. Oh, there you go. Okay, Rivka and Harrison. Then I'll tell you what I think. Rivka, go. I think they're all about life and suffering. <laughs> they're all about life and suffering. Well, why don't you try one of them? Why don't you try Robert Louis Stevenson? Oh, well, that's a joyous one. I think of his poems as being joyous, actually. So I think it's all of life. All right. So what was the line of Robert Louis Stevenson that you were thinking about? Is that the swing? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> you are almost my age, not not nearly my age, but you would have had the same picture book of Robert Louis Stevenson's poems when you were young. What's the line? Oh, I love to go up in a swing, up in a swing so high. That's how it starts. Uh, and the line that I was thinking about, wait a minute. Um, it starts, the world is so full of a number of things. I think we should all be as happy as kings. That very line. The world is so full of a number of things. I think we should all be as happy as kings. I see Cindy remembers that line. Did you remember that line? Did your parents read that to you? Yes. Anybody else? Lisa Marie? Okay, yeah. Judy, Clarence. So that, you know, the world is so full of an amazing thing. It's amazing. Okay. And Harrison, where are you? Where are in the world are you, Harrison? Oh, I'm in Santa Cruz right now. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I was, when you're going through them and you're jumping from like sea turtles to the 12 steps of dependent origination. I was like, well, these are, these are all things that maybe encourage your practice that bring you back to your practice. Because they're, they're amazing. Yeah. And then, and then like anything, anything can like call you back to maybe how, how precious this, uh, like life and experience and world is. And then um, that would be a, a call to practice. I think you're exactly right. You know, it, it sounds like, you know, people laugh at Valley Girl talk, but awesome, awesome. You know, that when something is awesome and it stops you in your tracks, you think about it like, wow. Uh, you know what? I didn't put it in, the, uh, in my notes, I don't think. But I should have put in, do you remember, um, it's maybe a month ago now, but when they uh, unveiled the new Webb telescope, which was such a big move forward from the Hubble. Remember, do you remember that? 
couple of weeks ago, they said now we have, or as a result of so many decades of building it and thinking about it and, you know, whatever. And uh, the astronomers and the astrophysicists and the people who were all doing that work at whatever venue they were at were all together when they turned on the switch that turned on the telescope that now was presumed to be looking way, way further back into the farthest reaches of the cosmos. And whoever was telling that story of being there, uh, and people have been working for decades on that, and they say, you know, ready, set, go, and they push the switch, whatever, and they're all watching apparently a way more close-up, amazing uh, appearance of way past what we thought we could see the furthest. And uh, the account I heard was that people in the room cried. It was a religious experience. And I can, and I feel in myself, as I tell it to you, that I am starting to cry. You know, there are things that you think, wow, for this, it was worth it to stay alive my whole life with all its storm and drang and difficult things and griefs and sadness and bereavements. For this, it made it worthwhile. Is that not your experience or is your experience? No, it's like very, very personally my experience because I was I was going through like, I had just dropped out of college when COVID started. I was going through like a really hard time for for like a year and a half. And I, I had written down on my phone uh, like sort of like reasons to, literally like reasons to be alive. Because I kind of, I needed that. And, and the top of it was, it was, it literally said, be alive to see James Webb telescope observations. Cause I was following the science news yeah. and I was like, I, yeah, that was my, <laughs> that was my first reason to, to be uh, alive pretty much was to see that sort of, I mean, there are other things, of course, that was what I needed to write down. Of course, but that's, a, that's, uh, first of all, thank you for sharing such an intimate thing. Are you well? Are you okay? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah I'm okay, thank you. Uh, no, I'm very glad to hear from you, and I'm very touched by your sharing. And um, I think that we very much are kept alive by what we are hoping, that hope keeps us alive. People say, I hope to make it to my... Uh, uh, grandson's wedding. When my husband was dying two years ago, he was hoping to live long enough. He knew he was dying. He was hoping to wait till his grandson's wife had a baby so he could see his own great grandbaby and hold it. And he did. And uh, I keep a picture of that back hidden behind my my screen, so you can see I've got pictures all over the place. But for my own private scene, I have a picture of him holding his grandbaby because he really wanted to get there. And great grandbaby, because that's a big deal. Um, and it's awesome. How can a person have a baby who has a baby who has a baby? Okay, thank you. So wait a minute, Jason and Victoria. I'd much rather hear you than me anyway, but go ahead, Jason. Good morning. Um, what stood out most for me was was the last one, nothing matters. And what it brought to mind for me is in my 12-step program, there's something called Rule 62, which is don't sweat the small stuff, and it's all small stuff. 
-hmm. And it kind of ties into the Four Noble Truths, um, you know, all of them, because life happens. And, you know, you can, you can, it's all about how you approach it, all about your attitude. If you look at it, it is all, it all happens and it's going to pass. Then it's all small stuff, you know, it's, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. And I'm really touched because on my page uh, here of uh, sentences that I've read to you, you know, this is, this is the last thing that I uh, wrote down, but I didn't read it. it. says things happen. That's the bottom line is that things happen. And it's just about being there. For right. it. So thank you very much for that. And Victoria, really... You you say what you want to say, and we'll all have more chances to share because I like that the best. Go ahead. Yeah, I I um, it, it uh, what pulled it all together. Actually, my favorite part was when you got to the sea turtles, but <laughs> it was this sense that um every everything in life in this world is amazing, and whether it's suffering or joy. Um, it's all held together by this, um, like you say, hope and also a kind of um, there is gratitude just for being alive, for be, having the privilege of going through it. And I actually um, I really love the book of Job and the idea that Job, um, you know, his friends are trying to figure out all these sort of rational reasons of why he's going through this tremendous suffering. And um, and then at some point he says about God though he slay me, I will still trust in him. And it's this idea that, that, that it doesn't matter. It's all, the reality is so much bigger than we are. And just the amazement at being able to be in this world, Mm -hmm. or like my own grandmother used to say, um, life is all about gain and loss, mostly loss. And then she would chuckle. She had a chuckle like yours. (laughs) Sylvia. And I always love, I always remember that because she'd say, you know, it was kind of seemed like a very bleak thing to say. Life's about gain and loss, mostly loss. But she said it with a twinkle in her eye. And, and that has brought me through so many, um, you know, terrible experiences because I thought, oh, well, that's just, you know, it's mostly, mostly loss. So, you know, and it's, I think it relates also to that nothing matters thing. And then just to tie it into Leonard Cohen, or well, not Leonard Cohen specifically, but, um, but just the word hallelujah, which means, you know, in the Hebrew, praise God, it's it, it is sort of the the big blanket. It's this and, it you know, like in the book of Job, it's a sense that it's all so much bigger than we can ever fathom and ever understand. And aren't we like the telescope? Aren't we privileged to even see a tiny corner of the universe? You know, it's it's just miraculous. So that was my take on it. I think that we're all, thank you very, very much. And I'm thinking about, uh, you had a everybody's grandmother, well, not everybody's, but many fortunate people have grandparents or memories of grandparents that said things like that. My grandfather, who lived to be 98, lived through so many tremendously sad things for him, uh, including uh, the death of my mother, his daughter where he seemed to me at at her funeral more upset really beside himself i was worried more worried about him than i was worried about myself surviving that and then uh at the end of the requisite mourning period 
he resumed his life and he said, um, well, what are you going to do? That's life, you know? And I, I, and uh, my grandmother never heard of the Buddha. My grandfather never heard of the Buddha. He could not read or write in any language at all. Um, but that's fundamental. What are you going to do? That's life. And things happen. And you just do them. And you keep on hoping that it's going to be good because that's built into us. Ah, everybody is great. So think of it. If you think of something, think, because I'll come back and say, I'll tell you some more of those things that I was thinking about. Oh, also, if I don't, you remind me, uh, what was I going to say? Uh, tell a story about Joseph and nothing matters. Maybe I should tell it now, because otherwise I might forget to. Um, okay. It's a, it's attached to nothing matters. It's not exactly nothing matters. Many years ago, like 40, I was at a meditation retreat, being a retreatant, and very seriously sitting all day, sitting and meditating, walking and meditating, sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And, uh, I must say, I was very, uh, I, I was very punctual. I mean, I sat when I was supposed to sit and I walked when I was supposed to walk and I didn't, uh, I didn't like go take a nap or go take a walk just to see the sights. So in a calendar kind of a way, I was a very serious practitioner, but I must say, I gave myself a lot of slack in terms of when I was sitting there. I would have a lot of fantasies. I'd write a lot of, I was teaching school at the time. I'd write a lot of lesson plans in my mind. I wasn't very um, ardent about really focusing my attention moment to moment. And I was having a good time. And uh, it didn't bother me that I wasn't making what I didn't know what kind of progress I was supposed to make. But I was having a good time. and. And I was walking along one afternoon, just after lunch, I was walking towards my room to, for whatever reason, on a certain walking path. And walking towards me was uh, my teacher, one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, a man who I very much admired. And he was talking to somebody, not a retreatant, maybe a friend of his. Uh, uh, I want to make sure I don't mess this up by telling him. Okay, a friend of his. They're walking along and they're having a conversation. And I didn't hear the whole conversation. And uh, the person I didn't know said something to him. And just as they passed me, Joseph responded to that person. And that was the only sentence I heard him say. Uh, and the sentence I heard him say was, well, you know, nothing is worth thinking about. And I thought, nothing is worth thinking about. I spent my entire life thinking about everything. I'm in my family. I was very, I, my, my, my family were all school teachers. My father particularly was an academic and he loved it that I thought about things and I did well in school because I thought, well, you know, that's like heresy. Nothing is worth thinking about. And, but I, it also came out of the mouth of my, really esteemed teacher, Joseph Goldstein, who had such equanimity and such poise, and I wanted to be like him. 
So I thought, whoa, and here I am slopping along, just, you know, thinking about this or that. So I decided that I would stop thinking about things. Nothing is worth thinking about. I wouldn't think about it. And that meant, in my mind, I wouldn't be sitting there on my Zafu and have this thought and let it play out and that one and let it play out. I wasn't going to think. I was just going to be there and feel my experience. So when we went back and sat down at the next meditation, I said, okay, no wandering mind. No mind doing here or there or up or there. It's going to be absolutely with my experience. Breathing in and out, in and out, sitting like this. And right away, you think, here comes a little thought. Well, this is pretty boring. This is not going to get us there. That, not the, you don't even think the thought. It was like the feeling of thoughts arising in the periphery of my brain or wherever it arises. I'm not doing that. I'm just being in, out, in, out. Literally. When I told it to uh, colleagues in years past that, they'd say, really, that doesn't seem like very relaxed practice. I said, well, it wasn't. I was really not relaxed, not thinking. Nothing is worth thinking about. Not going to think. And in fact, I just so seriously just was with my breath that things started to happen. My body started to shake. I started to feel energy running up and down my body. Now, that's actually a good sign because it means that the tension is really settling down. And at different levels of concentration, the body reveals itself a little bit more. So you start to feel all of, you know, sometimes you feel your hands are tingling. Sometimes you feel your whole body is tingling. And then your mind can't wander because it's so fascinating. All this stuff is happening. And a lot of years went by where I was fascinated with what was going on. And I was fascinated with how I, I thought to myself, gosh, I'm just like an acupuncture chart. We all are just like acupuncture charts. That's why they may be acupuncture charts, because those are different kinds of, um, uh, it's another map of uh, sensitivity in the body, like the veins and the arteries. And then that became its own problem because it intensifies and then it becomes confusing. But leaving that aside, I figured out how to moderate it after a while. But I thought, uh, I thought that was really good that I had that just fortuitous moment of passing by him. And he said, nothing is worth thinking about. And I said, wow, I'm not going to think anymore. I'm just going to feel. And it had been for me such a hallmark of really strengthening my concentration that it was in the end very helpful for me until it was a little bit overwhelming but um, years later I told Joseph that story when we were teaching colleagues I said you did me so much good because of that story I saw you walking along in Yucca Valley and you were walking with somebody and I heard you say nothing is worth thinking about and he said I said that I said, yes, yes, I heard you say that. He said, maybe I didn't mean that. He said, maybe I meant nothing is worth thinking about. So I, it took me, uh, you know, maybe another two decades to get what he actually meant about that. But nothing in the sense of uh, 
dukkha, nicha, anatta, the three characteristics of experience, where anatta is the awareness that there are no discrete things. We seem to think there's nothing, uh, there are no discrete things. This is, you can't have a finger without have a without having a hand. The finger can't be a finger unless the nerves in there respond so it can do the thing, the work of a finger. That everything doesn't have an end, but the, where where my skin certainly ends before my not skin are, arises, but it's warmer here than it is here. And I can kind of feel something near it even before you touch it. There's a way of beginning to find that there is nothing that operates independently of anything that's around us. My skin is doing the work of skin because there's no hole in it right here that would allow what's inside to come outside. Dams hold water in because they have a serious enough barrier. But the barrier is holding the water, and whatever's behind the barrier is holding this. There's nothing that's isolated, is what um, uh, anatta means. Uh, it doesn't have a substance in itself, in, except as it is dependent on other stuff. I am not feeling horrified. I don't feel horrified out of the blue, uh, apart from the fact that someone told me horrifying news, somebody heard the horrifying news, that the the everything is connected to causes and uh, causes and conditions. These conditions arise, they cause shifts that cause other shifts. The only thing that's always happening is change is happening as a result of causes and conditions. We have enough rain then uh, California may not have so many fires. Uh, if we don't have any rain, there'll be a whole different future that everything depends on everything else. And things that when I was a child, I'm bad, by the way, this, is a, this, this understanding of no separate self, it doesn't mean, it worries a lot of people to think, what do you, what do you mean there's no self in me? Uh, I certainly feel like myself every morning I get up and I'm myself, uh, unless I have a cerebral hemorrhage in the morning and I get up and I don't remember anything or I'm dead or something else has happened, that nothing happens, no thing happens, nothing happens apart from everything else, which has taken me I don't know, decades now, to appreciate it more. This isn't that I didn't understand that to begin with. Maybe I'll tell you this example. Because when talking about non-self, that uh, uh, there isn't anyone who lives in this body. I think we have a feeling when we're a child or sometimes as an adult, that a separate independent I is living in here and seeing out of these eyes, and hearing through these ears. And actually, we hear and interpret what we hear because sound waves come and bounce on our 
eardrums in such a way that we interpret as meaning something. And we're used to, since that means that, uh, yesterday morning, I think it was one of the mornings this week I woke up and can you hear that sound? Did you hear that? Everybody heard that sound? It was, it sounded like that. It was the sound of raindrops falling on my um, skylight. So even before I was awake, you wake up happy because it's raining. You didn't open your eyes. You don't see it's raining. Uh, you just hear this, which is associated with rain falling and happiness arising because in California, we need rain really badly. So that the sound brings happiness. But the sound could have been a drummer. It could have been something else. It could have been, I don't know, could have been something else. But we do everything else in concert with what everything else has been before. So if I know I'm waking up in this bed with that proximity to the skylight, that things are just happening and happiness is arising in me. And it all happens without even thinking about it. That just things are miraculously happening and things are getting done and telescopes are being built and babies are getting born because everything else is happening. Does that make sense to you? Because I think that this awareness of nothing happens really in a vacuum. Everything happens to everyone. There's a, a kind of an adage or an understanding that uh, uh, the butterfly shaking, uh, fluttering its wings in New England is part of the cause of the tsunami in the South Pacific. So meaning to say that everything is affecting everything. I'll leave that a little bit because we'll let it um, we'll let it just sit there a little bit. It's part of what I was going to say about uh, no, I was going to say some one more story that makes that I was leading up to, and then I forgot this part, which is the most important. When I heard my teachers first, this is 40 some years ago, talking about there's no separate self in here that's behind those eyes or in here making the decisions. And I thought, no, there's gotta be, maybe it's a soul or it's an ego or it's a something. My, there's really is an ego. I think it's a construct. There's no, if you do a surgery, you won't find an ego in people, but I do have a constellation of ego functioning. I remember what my name is and I remember how to drive a car. But I don't have to remember how to drive the car every time. I just sit down and it happens. Driving the car happens. I don't have to re-educate myself about how to drive every time I sit down or how to bake a bread. You just do it. Anyway, I was listening to my teachers saying things just happen and there isn't a a thing that this is a very highly specialized mind body production this this being called Sylvia but that's all when you die that's it there's nothing I mean your bones last for a while but there isn't something 
many people uh, think that um, about rebirth in terms of you'll be born again in another life. Uh, it's not a thing that I resonate to. Um, Tibetan Buddhism talks about that quite a lot more than Theravada. Uh, that's a whole other talk, though. But I remember my teachers talking about everything is conditioned. The fact that uh, the fact that uh, if I'm taking a yoga class and the teacher says, as you're lying on your back, raise your right hand, and my arm comes up in the air doesn't mean that there was a little determiner in me that said, okay, Sylvia, you know, now do what you have to do to raise your hand. That particular constellation of taps on my ear causes my arm to go up. It's like magic. You think about it. There's another tapping, a series of tappings says, let your arm come down and it comes down. That's really amazing. But is there something in there? And I kept thinking, sure, there's something in there. I couldn't just be nothing. It must be some soul, some something. And I was um, I was out doing one of the periods of uh, walking meditation where you pay attention to your foot on the floor. And uh, so here's your foot on the floor. And you can feel the heaviness of your foot on the floor. And you can feel that you're picking it up and it's light. Your experience with it is that there's lightness around your foot. Maybe there's an experience of motion. And then there's the experience of touching, touching. And then there's an experience of more touching. And then on the other side, the same. But there isn't somebody who's saying, okay, now pick up the heel, pick up the rest of the foot, put it down. Pick up the heel, pick up the rest of the foot, put it down. The only thing there was, was intention. Intention arose that said, okay, one of the teachers said to go outside and take a walk. So because the, <laughs> I'm thinking about, uh, we are all conditioned to follow instructions. If the, Instructions come from something that's trustworthy. Uh, the instruction is lift your arm. Nothing has to happen. It doesn't have to be deliberate. You don't make a choice. That just happens. You, I'm supposed to be taking a walk. It just happens. I once was taking a walk like that on a retreat. And I was walking along and back and forth. If you've been at Spirit Rock and outside on the patio, you know, the people are walking on the patio back and forth before they go back into the meditation hall. And over here, there's a water fountain. And at one point, I find I'm walking, 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 turn around, walking back, back, forth, back, forth. And suddenly, I'm standing in front of the water fountain taking a drink of water. And I, I said, wait a minute. That didn't just happen suddenly. I'm not magically transported there. If I go back, I can realize that I'm walking, walking, feeling the floor and the floor and the floor. And noticing that. And not noticing that uh, thirst is arising as I'm doing that. 
I'm not particularly noticing that uh, I'm remembering that there's a water fountain over there right here that I'm just about to approach. I'm not particularly noticing that my body veers off. I must have noticed that there was nobody in my line of walking, but I'm suddenly drinking out of the water fountain, which is, it's fine. And then I thought, you know, I'm just like the deer that we have out at Spirit Rock. They graze over here and they eat a little bit of grass. And then they all of a sudden are eating the grass over there, over there. And I don't think they're thinking to themselves, hmm, I used up all the grass here. Maybe I better look around and make a decision about whether the grass is looking greener there or there or there. They're just doing it. And I think we're just doing it. This amazingly complex organism is following its impulses and its inhibitions and its intentions. I have impulses. Uh, I'd like to be in front of this line to have dinner, not in the back. But I have inhibitions also. <laughs> Something about me knows that that's not done. I don't cut in front of the whole line. So I could have that impulse. I wish I were there. I can have the inhibition of the impulse. I'll just wait here. And I can have my dinner. But then I'm pretty much shaped by the experiences I had growing up. Is this all making sense to me? It took me a long time to see that nobody's home. This is a highly trained, uh, heart trained, not just mine, but heart trained. It responds also to uh, people in need, people in sick, who are sick. Because my experience as a child and growing up was that people took good care of me. And in the in the awareness that that constellation of getting taken care of well produces pleasure on both sides of the carer and the carry, we grow up to be compassionately responding grown-ups. I mean, we tell people about it, and not just our parents do that, but we learn about it in school and we talk about it. But we're really very much dependent on what impulses are our habits. When I tell people who say, why are you practicing mindfulness? What's the goal of your meditation? The goal of my meditation is to habituate my mind to kindness. And it is a lot because it was as I grew up and I had a lot of good fortune in my life. I also had the good fortune of studying Dharma and the good fortune that comes with that of discovering that unkindness causes pain not only to the, pe the person who's a recipient of the unkindness, but to me when I do an unkindness. So really, it's like, it's like learning to play the piano by ear or something. You know, you just learn, and it happens. Is this all making sense, or does it? How many people feel I'm jabbering away and not making any sense? <laughs> all right, good. That reassures me. Let's let's do the list. Rest of the list. We were talking about the Hubble telescope and the web. 
We talk, and Jane Kenyon was on my list. Anybody want to guess why Jane Kenyon's on the list? I see Doris had her hand up. Who? Doris. Doris. Why is Jane Kenyon on the list? Thank you, Carlita. Her poem, Otherwise. There you go. That's exactly that. That's exactly that. Thank you very much. I'll read you the poem. Otherwise, unless you have it in front of you, Doris, and want to read. I don't. Okay. I have it on my bedside. Okay. Um, I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal, sweet milk, ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birch wood. All morning, I did the work I love. At noon, I lay down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. We ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls and planned another day just like this day. But one day I know it will be otherwise. For how many people was that uh, the first time they heard Jane Kenyon? She died when she was 48 years old. There's a very wonderful poet. It might be otherwise tomorrow. You know, when, when you get old, I'm reading a book, and I read it yesterday. It's a one-day read. Uh, it's by Sandra. Uh, Sandra. I'll remember it by the time. I hope I remember it. Because... <laughs> It's about how when you get old, you lose your <laughs> short-term memory. <laughs> so that's a demonstration of it. But it's extremely funny. Sandra, the Bay Area poet. Sandra Burton. I might look for it. How many people want me to tell them? I laughed through it. I read the whole book in one day. And if you're over 60 or 70, you should want to read it. You will find it. Someone gave it to me as a gift. She said, you'll love it. I lay, I just sat back down on my bed and I read the whole book. Uh, Sandra Bullock? No, she's a movie actress. So get Jane Kenyon. Every moment is otherwise, really. There's a line in uh, the Leonard Cohen movie where he says, um, sing hallelujah that you're born because what are the chances that you could be born? He said, you have been, this is what he says, you have been, you have won the lottery of a life on earth. And the Buddha said, just to make sure that you're in the right class, the Buddha said the chances of you are getting born in a life are the same as the chances that would be 
if a giant sea turtle was to swim around all the seven oceans of the world, and every seven years, or the first of every year, the sea turtle sticks her head up out of the water and looks around. And on the first of the year, that's all, otherwise swimming the whole year. And in the whole seven oceans of the world, there are seven big uh, rings, uh, like life preservers that you throw to somebody. If they're overboard, you can put the life ring around your neck. So on all the oceans of the world, there's seven of these life preservers out there. And once a year, the turtle sticks his head, her head up. Uh, I made that up. You know, I've heard that story a lot and they always say his, but they got to be women sea turtles also. So stick their head up through that ring. And the chances of that, that you be born in your incarnation the way you are, are the same as the sea turtle encountering one of those seven rings. So what he meant to say is that goes with his using uh, the expression, uh, this one precious life. And which is, uh, I think, an expression also from Jane Kenyon. No, Mary Oliver. What are you going to do with this one wild and precious life? That's Mary Oliver. <laughs> now I feel better that I had another correct um, memory after I couldn't remember Sandy Sandy's last name. All right, so Robert Louis Stevenson says, the world is so full of a number of things, I think we should all be as happy as kings. And the 12 stages of dependent origination. 12, the, the 12 stages of dependent origination is really, I think, the one stage of things happen because other things happen. And uh, it's an old teaching that uh, I just finished watching uh, in a course called uh, Dependent Origination that Tricycle Magazine sponsored on their site. If you feel interested in that, you could probably find it and pay for it and take it retroactively. I, I like the four uh, teachers that were teaching it. And I hadn't seen them in a long time. And I thought, well, I'll do that for six weeks. I'll sign up and take that. And they said very interesting things about uh, that. The, what is a piece of classical uh, ancient text means when this happens, this happens, this happens, this happens. Sandra Butler. I think you might be right. She's a Bay Area writer. Oh, not it's a uh, I'll I'll look. I will look. But the, these four uh, scholars, all of whom read ancient Pali, and uh, really talked about what's the essence of what you have to know. And uh, I think after the sixth week, what I really understood, in a way that was kind of a 
um, an insight that you don't forget is that everything causes everything else. That that here is this whole cosmos unfolding moment to moment as we speak. Uh, I remember talking to uh, a class. I don't know. I, I must have been twenty five years ago, and trying to under, and trying to explain what karma in the largest sense meant, because I was quite clear be, that it didn't mean um, the folkloric thing that people sometimes use. That you know, if you were a terrible person, it'll come back and get you in your next life, or if you did bad things and terrible things that happened to you in your next life. And that didn't work for me because the next life doesn't resonate with me. And in certain traditions of Buddhism, it certainly does, but uh, um, not so much in the Theravada. They don't talk about it a lot. And a lot of when it is modern people talking about it are in Theravada which is what mindfulness is part of, are saying um, <clears throat> these are people who changed. Any, anyway, <clears throat> sorry, wait, wait, wait. Okay, better. That um, karma means actions influencing other things. It doesn't mean that the scales will be balanced because you were mean. Misfortune will get you in another life. Uh, I do be believe that if we are mean, we will end up in pain, but not in the next life, in this life, because I think we will, we will have started out in pain because people aren't mean just out of the blue. They're already mean. They're already in pain. Otherwise, they wouldn't be mean. But the, 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 the thing that I want to think about was 25 years ago, I remember, talking about karma, uh, particularly the Buddhist line, every individual is heir to their own karma. And what did that mean? And I said that I was also interested in the two words, proximal karma and distal karma. And I said, if I sat here, if I was sitting here with my grandson, uh, Eric, sitting on my lap, and Eric is uh, three years old, and Eric has a cold and he sneezes uh, on my lap and doesn't know to cover his nose. Uh, and three days from now, I get a cold. In a way, it will be my karma that I sat there, not because I'm a bad person and not because Eric is a bad person. Eric is three-year-old who doesn't quite get it about covering the nose. And I'm his grandmother, so he's sitting on my lap. And the fact that, it, that Eric is sitting on my lap has to do with a whole swath of Western history because it depends on my parents having met when they did and liking each other enough to get married and producing a child, which they did, and my finding someone with whom I wanted to produce a child who came from other people liking each other and who produced other people who ultimately ended up at, uh, at uh, as Eric's grandparents and Eric's parents, 
And uh, Eric met somebody who had a cold. But even before that, all the people that Eric got, maybe his preschool teacher gave him the cold, but he had to have those parents and he had to have those grandparents who had to have met each other. Uh, his parents had to have both been Europe doing, doing different things because they come from different countries and their paths have to have crossed exactly then. And all of that depends on my parents and my husband's parents having come to the uh, America at the beginning of the 20th century because the conditions for Jews in Western Europe was very bad, which has to do with the opening changes in trade in what in Europe, which has to do with trade routes to um, Asia having been open and um, all of those people somehow uh, Marco Polo opening trade routes in Asia to Europe is part of the karma of Eric sitting on my lap and Smeezy. And when you go all the way back, that's all distal karma. But if anything had happened different, might not end up, wouldn't end up with Eric sitting on my lap and sneezing and my having been vulnerable to it. So everything depends on everything backwards, everything. And sometimes people say things that are logically unbelievable, like everybody has always been your parents, so that zillions of lifetimes, everyone has been your mother and your father, and that's why you should take care of everybody and and wish well for everybody. But I don't think it means they have to have been your corporeal parent. But I think maybe it means more like Everybody could have been, and everybody had to be who they were for things to unfold in such a way that at this moment, Eric can sneeze and it makes a difference to me. That there's a way that everything is connected. Eric doesn't end at Eric, and I don't end here. Anyway, there are moments that I absolutely get that so clearly that I, I feel grateful to find myself at this point, at this end of this lifetime. Not like I had other lifetimes, but the lifetimes that went before. And it also arouses in me a compassion for everybody who doesn't realize that it's a miracle, that this whole thing is going out. You look out, you say, it's a miracle. I got up this morning. I, go, I knew who I was. I got out of bed. I'm still here. Religious Jews, when they get up in the morning, say thank you as the first thing they say when they get up in the morning. Because it could have been otherwise. You know, you could have not. Uh, but uh, I think when you think that, you think everybody could have not. Uh, and everybody who did, did. And it, for me, softens my mind towards what would be enemies. The big thing about this, the whole underlying, overlining, everything, is if it can't be otherwise, I mean, if it isn't otherwise, and it could have been otherwise, then it's like this. And the only way forward is to say hallelujah, really. This is what I've got, and I've still got it. Could have been otherwise, but it wasn't. And change is happening. That's a dependable thing.
That makes sense to all of you. <laughs> Not so sure. But I would be very happy if... I'm looking to see. There we go. I'd be very happy if somebody would want to say some remarks. Think about saying a remark. There you go. Or how about this? Oh, okay. Anna Bauer. I, I have a good idea. I think it's a good idea. <laughs> Where is Carlita? There she is. Carlita, how many people would like to have uh, two minutes and 35 seconds to hear Leonard Cohen sing that again? During which time you can think what you want to say. All right. So that when we open our eyes again at the end, We'll see all kinds of people who have clicked on. I want to say something. Okay. And you, got, you don't have to have the definitive, I'm going to say this. You can ask a question, too. Because those were 10 disparate things, but I think they all go together. They all mean everything is happening and everything matters. And nothing matters. Because there's no thing that's separate from anything else. Okay. And it also matters, nothing matters because it's all changing. Okay, go. Let's go with uh, Leonard Cohen. You look around and you see a world that cannot be made sense of. You either raise your fists or you say hallelujah. Hallelujah. I was a young reporter for Rolling Stone magazine in 74 doing a piece on Leonard. He's so gracious. It goes like this, the fourth. Leonard, he was always a spiritual seeker. Unlocking the mysteries of life was his primary preoccupation. Sitting in a meditation hall for four or five hours a day, you kind of get straight with yourself. You know, it was often starting with this song, first thing coffee, then working on Hallelujah. Hallelujah. There was a lot of verses. The number 180 comes to mind. The real song, where that comes from, no one knows that is grace, that is a gift. Columbia Records uh, refused to put it out. The rejection of an album after it's paid for, that's pretty extreme, yeah. He was crushed after that. She tied you to a kitchen chair. The first version of Hallelujah I heard was Jeff Buckley. Jeff Buckley. I remember John Cale covering that song. And I remember going, wow, not a lot of people know that tune. Just Cale and Buckley and then Shrek. So Shrek really broke it. And even though it all went wrong. Hallelujah really beat the odds and that it's its own thing now. And it has its own life. I mean, I think he was tickled pink that everybody in their sister was singing the song. You're getting things that are so deep and so resonant in your own spiritual journey that you are benefiting from his.
you look around and you see a world that cannot be made. <laughs> we could have done it another time through, but what do you think? No, no, not, not what do you think about another time through. It didn't see like a million hands go up. Try to say something now and think about it. Okay, there's Anna. Who else wants to join Anna in the queue? All right, we'll start. Oh, good. Good. Good, good, good. All right. Go, Anna. Hello, Sylvia. Hello, everybody. Um, hi, Carlita. Lovely to be back. I wanted to introduce my cousin, Louisa, to all of you. I'm sorry. Um, and um, Sylvia, I don't know if you remember, recall, about 10 months ago, I had a class with you and we were speaking about loss, I think. And I was mentioning that, sadly, Louisa's dad was very ill and what to do. And I said it would be best to tell her father that we would all take care of his children. I remember you saying, I got, I'm getting goosebumps, Anna, and that's a lovely idea. And my dad did that. And Luisa is now with me. And it's not a big, I don't want to be dramatic or anything, but um, I looked up the class today and was you teaching and I thought, great, here we are. And yeah, hallelujah to being together, I guess. And to taking care of each other and to wishing matter. I, sadly, we sadly missed um, the beginning of the class because I just moved and Luisa is helping me. Um, but normally I know that after the first sitting, we wish matter. And I wanted to wish matter or ask for matter for Luisa because it's still very tough. And they're dealing with a lot of complications with family matters. And um, it's hard. It's a really hard time for her and her siblings. Um, so, first of all, there she is. And secondly, thank you, as always. And good to see everybody. Oh, my. So, thank you very much to, whoops, there you go over there. Um, thank you very much for the both of you to come, you know. One of the things that I was thinking about yesterday is that uh, I keep thinking about when one has a personal catastrophe in one's family, like you lose somebody who is dear to you, uh, and you realize that the whole world is seven, how many people in the world? Seven billion people in the world. And they're all there. Everybody suffers all over the place. But if it's somebody in your family or next to you or your kin, the whole world disappears from your consciousness because you are entirely concerned about that person. And I think that's probably connected to why the, why the world has endured. It's supposed to be that way, that we are wired for our own, our own, um, to keep ourselves alive and those people who are the dearest to us. And one of the things that I learned, um, I learned from this course that I, uh, just finished taking from Tricycle on the dependent origination 
there were different points of view and people were saying, well, if this hurts, if, if something painful happens, then grief arises. And the, another person was saying, you know, grief doesn't arise afterward. The grief is part of that, that there isn't a way to be a human being and skip over to where the grief is like a decision that you make. The, the grief, we are wired to grieve the loss of someone intimately important to us. We just do. Um, my friend uh, Sharon Salzberg talking about a bad thing. She was talking about uh, probably, I don't remember the context, maybe the, the idea that what's what suffering is the second arrow, that something shoots you and it's just what it is. But if you think about it or uh, dwell on it or make a story about it, then you have suffering. But if you take it, if you don't make a story about it, then you don't have that. And Sharon has been saying in recent years, she says some things just hurt. You don't make a decision, you know, or you don't make a decision. I should be over it already. Uh, nobody tells you how long the grief is going to take. And you don't say to yourself, well, I should be over this. You know, grief is here. You mm -hmm. lose something that's dear to you. Like you lose a piece of your body that's dear to you. It's just something's just hurt. It's not a decision that the mind makes. Well, thank you, Sylvia. And I also always or think for myself with big life events like birth or death or loss, that and you might I'm curious what you think because you lost your husband after so many years of being together I think you can prepare yourself and prepare yourself and also in that case it was a long illness but when it happens it's like a wave you know like you see the wave coming if you surf you see it you see it but you really don't know how hard it's going to hit you and where it's going to tumble you and you, you can surf for years and it can still smash you yes and um yeah yes And you don't know when, you know, you, oh. you and, and you say, well, uh, I think maybe we, uh, even the expectation I should be over this is like irrelevant if we're not. Or as you say, it comes in a wave. Suddenly you hear a certain song and it moves you or it reminds you. Uh, uh, in my case, in my family, every time somebody has a birthday or there's a birthday party, They say, oh, dad would be so happy if he were here. And all of a sudden you have a feeling of, you know, dad would really be happy if he were here. And it's not a wrong thing. I mean, we knew about it, lives end. All of that, you know, that lives end, relationship ends. Your own life is going to end. But it's painful. You don't want that. Uh, and we're wired that way. I think that that's... it. it, it I think it's important because it's a precursor to compassion. How could we feel for other people if we don't experience in ourselves what loss feels like? So thank you very much for coming to both of you. Thank you. Lovely to see you. Victoria. Um, I have a question, Sylvia. Um, in your list, um, you the seventh, at least the way I wrote them down, the, the seventh one was the four noble truths. And then um, 
the ninth one is the one noble truth. And I, I don't, I don't know the one noble truth, or maybe I do, but I didn't know, didn't know I knew it. No, no. All right. So this is a little extemporaneous. Uh, I, there's a way in which I was going to say two things because I also want other people. Uh, one is in recent years, I've always taught the four noble truths because it's the most, uh, I think it's the most basic. You can talk to Buddhists who are in this lineage, that lineage, that lineage, that lineage. And everybody heard of Shakyamuni Buddha and that Buddha who said there are these are four noble truths. Life comes with pain and difficulty. And uh, uh, suffering is the result of our inability to accommodate the whatever the stress of pain is. That, you know, painful things happen. You lose people. But to make more of it, to, 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 uh, have an adversarial attitude about this shouldn't be happening to me. It did happen. So that the wisdom part that says it did happen and it is painful and it will pass, that doesn't make it worse. So second noble truth is usually we make it worse. And, and the third noble truth is we don't have to. If we had wisdom, we would say, no, no, wait a minute. Like my grandfather used to, he'd say, that's life. It feels bad, and if I feel sad, but it'll pass. Everything passes. So I used to say, okay, that's really the Four Noble Truths. Then I began to think recently that I really think that uh, the three factors of experience, everything is, uh, uh, everything is uh, uh, temporal. The, when the Buddha died, the last thing he said is, transient are all created things. Things come up and they pass. They got rise and pass and they rise and pass. And even mountains, they arise and pass. And at one point, California was probably a verdant state. And now it's pretty dry and full of fires. So sometimes it passes slowly. So, but everything passes. And the second of those three factors of experience is, well, actually, it's usually listed third, but let's put it second. The first is everything is temporal. The third is anatta. Nothing is separate from anything else. Everything is the result of causes or the recipient of uh, some type of, sometimes people say, because of this, that. That's what the Buddha taught. There's nothing that's without a cause because of this, that, and then because of that, this, and you don't know, and it, it can't happen until this happens and this happens and this happens. But everything is interrelated. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, if you um, uh, that, that wrote a lot of poetry or, or pra poems of praise about this piece of paper has rain in it and it has this in it and it has wind in it because without rain and, uh, and people who... Uh, Harvested the, the 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 water the crops that made the paper that transported it. I couldn't be writing on this piece of paper except for the whole of the world on the piece of paper. So everything is in everything else. And the third of the characteristics is that the nature of life is suffering. But the word for suffering, dukkha, 
really sounds is, is many Buddhist scholars that I know that that's the wrong um, it's the wrong word because suffering you usually think of something that's agonizing like uh, you get your I don't know a hand caught in the door of a car that's very very painful but uh, or having a grudge on somebody for a lot of years that's very very painful but Really, I think the suffering in Dukkha Nichanata means that life is a bumpy road and you just have to have a good grip all the time. I think that that's what it means, that uh, some scholars are taking the word Dukkha that, and that's translated as suffering and saying it comes from the word that means the axle of an ox cart. And in the days of the Buddha, they... I guess ox, ox carts and axles not being that smoothly fitted, that a trip on a bumpy road in an ox cart would be somewhat uncomfortable. It's doable, but it's uncomfortable. You bounce around a lot. And I thought that that's, uh, using that as a definition of, uh, of comfortable, of dukkha, uncomfortable. It's like life in an ox cart. You have to get a grip and just, and not expect it to be other than that. Not expected that it would be other than that. It's like that. It's like this. What are you going to do? That's life. It's not... Uh, some people, including, I think, to my... It was very... It worked for my grandfather and it pulled him through a lot of terrible moments in his life. But I think that that, that it, it is. What are you going to do? That's life. We're going to lose a lot of people and feel a lot of pain. And have a lot of joy also. And maybe that's the point about looking for what's, what's the joyous thing. Uh, uh, I also have a photo of, uh, uh, my husband holding the hand of that baby, which is four generations down from one, two, three generations down from him. And that gives me a lot of joy to look at. So, I mean, there are marvelous things like that, like art and poetry and great-grandchildren. and uh, It's where you put your mind. Um, anyway, that's what I think. And the first noble truth is, I think, it's all happening. That's it. That's the one noble truth. Life, uh, I would do it, life is happening. That's the one noble truth. Life is happening and everything within it. Thank you, though. I'm Thank glad you. I remember that was really your question. Lisa Marie. Um, I'm so grateful that we got to uh, listen to that video again because there was a moment that I did not hear at all the first time and I almost didn't hear it the second time. And um, for one thing, that just strikes me as kind of unbelievable uh, that, that like, uh, it could have, something could be right in your face and in your ears and you be completely unaware of it. But what I caught the second time and almost aren't even sure that I heard it even is that, um, the comment that by the spiritual practice that Leonard Cohen did and then by the life that he led, other people got to rub up against that and everyone benefited from it. I believe I heard that in there. And like I said, I'm not even sure that I did. Um, 
I think so because I also when I heard it and I've I've heard it now so many times because I played the that clip for myself a bunch of times. We talked about the time and I just wrote it down as we heard it this last time. He said you live in a monastery and you spend four or five hours a day meditating. You kind of get straight with yourself. That uh, and I appreciated that more and more. He actually uh, the line before it in the movie where he's telling expanded story. He said then I was a really hard time in my life and I was drinking a little too much. Mm -hmm. I realized I had been drinking too much. So I moved in with, I I had known Sasaki Roshi at the Los Angeles Zen Center. And I moved in to the Los Angeles Mount Baldy Zen Center. Sasaki is dead now. And uh, I stayed there seven years. That's not a, you know, that's not a minor commitment, seven years. And you see him wearing robes and uh, just walking around and sitting, sat for seven years. And you get safe with yourself. There's no place to hide once you sit down with your mind. So I really was very impressed with that. Uh, I assume he also got over his alcohol addiction. That was a that was a nice moment. Uh, you sit down with yourself and there's no place to hide. There was something about the other comment that made me feel very happy that you take the time to do that. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, you know, it's this con- uh, this connectedness, the sneeze, you know, and how, how far back can you trace it? Yeah. That, that does rub up against everyone else we come in contact with and everyone else doing that impact yeah. me too. And that everybody is doing everything. If you think about it at this moment, sometimes um, we could do it today. Uh, that would be lovely. Maybe it'd be lovely. I think it might. We'll try it. So I get to choose. <laughs> uh, what about, because sometimes when people are doing uh, a practice of blessing, whether it's a formal blessing uh, of uh, may everyone feel safe, may I feel safe, uh, may I feel uh, content, may I feel strong, may I live with ease, or some formulaic thing like that, where people have told you that. But I, there are very many rubrics for what to repeat to each to oneself um, as uh, uh, meta phrases, meta meaning loving kindness phrases. Uh, and sometimes, what I like to do is just name people for myself. So sometimes, when I'm sitting by myself. I'm in order to have like a metronome keeping time with myself. I establish myself in my breath, breathing in and out and in and out. And each time my breath goes in and out, I say a person that I am sending love to or wishing well. I don't say all the things, maybe peaceful, maybe be happy, maybe this, maybe that. Just their name in my mind. Uh, is that interesting to you? We could try that. Uh, just their name in my mind, because when it, I've been doing that for years, and the first twenty names are easy, because you you know by the time your parents and your first cousins and your connected this, if you have a partner or your siblings and your children and their children and their children, 
20 people we mostly have in our life. But then you start to think, oh, I'm running out of people. And then you start to think the people who live in the apartment across the hall and the person who's the checker in the, in the apartments in the food store and this one and that one and that one and that one. And all your friends. Uh, and you can go for quite a long time because then you start to feel, oh, I'm running out of people. But it's like a game at that point. But you can relax about it. You can just give yourself some time. So that person that I saw and that person that formed that person is in my class with me and that one. We know a lot of people, even if we don't know their names. And by naming all the people, it makes you feel connected to a lot of people. It makes you feel good. Uh, I used to do it uh, as a uh, as a final meditation at classes around Thanksgiving, like out of gratitude for all the friendship that I have. I'm going to name all the friends that I have now. Even as I say that to you, I'm thinking my first friend was uh, Rosemary Leonardi, who lived across the street from me at 2348 Ocean Parkway in Brooklyn. And we used to walk to home for lunch and back to school together every day. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happened to Rosemary Leonardi. I remember her birthday was June 4th. And she had a whole lesson life somewhere. Maybe she's not alive anymore. But if I'm doing a thing like that, naming people, I'll remember, I might remember her or somebody else. And it picks me up from my being, uh, imploded into me and my story to being connected to people and their stories all over the world. You want to try that? Yes. Yeah. All right. I was going to have us listen to Leonard Cohen again, but we'll do this better. Uh, was that the last person who was going to say something? Yes. Okay. So look at each other. So I, we'll see each other. I don't know if we're going to see each other again in August. I'll tell you. Uh, no, I won't tell you. It's too hard to tell you. Uh, we'll see each other sometime. I think in August again another time. Maybe even two weeks from now. Oh, someone wrote me in a chat and said it was Sandy. Wait a minute. Who sent me a chat? Was it you, Rivka? Um, it was actually Una and then also Nancy. They located the book. It's uh, by Sandra Butler. Butler, excuse me. It is Put Sandra that in the Butler. chat. And it's called uh, the kitchen. Let me find it online, and I will put it in the chat. The, the kitchen, kitchen is, is closed. closed. That's her testament about I'm not cooking anymore. But you put in a restaurant when you want people to co- go home. <laughs> there's still people in there eating, and there's other people knocking at the door. You put up a thing that says the kitchen is closed, and it's called the joys of being an old person. So. If you can believe it, Butler, the kitchen is closed by Sandra Butler. And if you're old or planning to be old, um, it's a fun thing to read. Okay, here we are. And we're just looking at each other. And in five minutes, Carlita will um, just end the meeting. So one, two, three, wish well for yourself and then look at other people and wish well for them.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.